0: Welcome to the Gather Houston podcast. We are a Christian community practicing the way of Jesus in all parts of life and for the good of all people. Thank you for joining us today. So uh, this is the second week of our look at the parables of Jesus. Over the next couple of months, we're gonna look at at these parables. And just as a reminder, a lot of folks are new around here. We're at the now kind of in the tail end of what what we have called our year with Jesus. In 2023, we had focused Uh, only solely on the life and the teachings of Jesus. And we're doing that because we just want to be abundantly clear um, that we don't worship the Bible and uh, we don't worship the Apostle Paul. As Christians, if if you are someone who identifies as a Christian, then we are worshiping and following Jesus. And so we have spent the year trying, hoping to learn uh, from Jesus about this life of Jesus so that ultimately we could embody the way of Jesus uh, in the world. And so right now we're talking about these parables, and these are um, the stories you probably know. These are stories you maybe learned as a kid. These are the most famous teachings from Jesus. It's stories like the Good Samaritan and the Prodigal Son. And um, the other first century Jewish rabbis were also teaching this way, using parables. Jesus wasn't the only person employing this type of teaching in the world. And the parables aren't about defining or really describing, right? It's about giving new eyes to see and experience everything. We want often the teaching of Jesus and really the whole Bible to act as this sort of dictionary definition of the of the whole world, definitely of God, that maybe there's one right way to see everything and we're looking for that one right way. But these parables act more like a piece of art. Right? They're, they're, they're stories, they're poetry, they're complex and interesting and complicated. Right? They're about beauty and imagery and emotion. It's a new way to see everything. And so as we're walking through all of these different stories, we're going to be kind of asking ourselves, what is a new way to see this? Right? I used to see it like this, and now maybe I could see this passage and maybe everything in my life in this new way. And so today we'll be applying that question, what's a new way to see this, uh, from the parable of the wise and the foolish builders. And maybe, you know, if you don't know all the parables by their titles, it's okay. There's no quiz, okay? Side note, there's never, ever going to be a quiz. Uh, So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 7 today. It's at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, and this is what Jesus says. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. Hear the words, put them into practice, and your house won't fall. It's not a particularly complicated concept, but it really helps to know what Jesus has just said. Jesus says right here, um, if you hear these words of mine, and the temptation, or just our natural reaction even, is to fill that in with whatever we deem to be correct. So we say, uh, whoever uh, votes Republican, whoever hears me tell you to vote Republican and puts that into practice is a wise man whose house will not fall. Or whoever um, agrees with my particularly particular set of ethics and ideology, that's a wise man. But Jesus is talking about a very particular set of teaching. Right? It's not something that we just get to fill in and say, well, what do I think Jesus said about these things? Jesus says, uh, if you heard these words of mine, like the ones I just said, and the, the therefore at the beginning of this passage is really the hint that we should go backwards and figure out what Jesus was talking about. Right? We don't get to just fill in the blank here. So this parable comes uh, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And um, if, you, if you turn your page back in your Bible, you guys didn't bring a Bible today, huh? <laughs> Maybe we'll start doing quizzes. I'm just kidding. I don't carry a Bible around. Some people are like waiting for me to pull out my Bible when I meet you for coffee. It's not there. I'm so sorry to disappoint. Um, but if you go back a chapter in Matthew, um, Jesus is saying things like this: be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others, to be seen by them. When you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets at trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets, to be honored by others. Jesus is saying this. When you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Jesus says, When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. And do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. These are the words we're supposed to be putting into practice. It's not an arbitrary thing that we get to fill in the blank in. It's that set of teaching that Jesus gives. I used to see this passage, a very famous uh, parable, as just a critique of the kind of spirituality that is belief-centered and not action-centered, and that's a part of it. But I see this more now than just a dichotomy between action or inaction. In its context, Jesus is taking a firm stance in a spirituality that's rooted in performance. Right? Don't do like the hypocrites do, standing in the streets and doing their prayers and their giving just to be seen. Don't give with trumpets. Don't even pray out loud, Jesus says. And don't show off your wealth. Don't store up your treasures here. So what I'm seeing now is this this parable isn't just about if we embody our spirituality it's about how we embody our spirituality not as a performance but as a practice not so others can see it but so that we can be transformed by it hear me today jesus-centered spirituality is a practice not a performance that's the whole sermon okay that's it let's work this out a little bit performances are done in public Performances are about impressing or entertaining. Performances seek to achieve perfection. Performances have a judge. Does that sound like what you learned growing up in church? That you were going to have a judge, that you needed to do it in in public, that you were seeking some sort of perfection, that there was an audience involved. But a practice is different. Because practices aren't done with the goal of perfection. They're always done with the goal of transformation. Or change. Practices normalize failure. When you are doing a practice, it doesn't require an audience and it never has a judge. There's no one waiting to applaud your practice. There's never any shame in a practice. You just try again. And I know um, that there are some familiar grooves in your brain and I have them too, that tell you differently. But church is not a performance. Church, you showing up here, hopefully is a part of your practice, your regular practice, but this is not a place where you need to perform. No part of your spirituality needs to be a performance. There is no audience for you. And maybe that's bad news for you. Maybe you've been doing this because you're like, somebody should start clapping soon. I've been reading this confusing Bible every morning. Someone needs to pat me on the back. There's no audience. There's no judge critiquing you. You don't have to do any of this perfectly. This is a place where we normalize failure and then we just try again. And it turns out that all of life is just a big practice. None of it has to be a performance. And I think a lot of us live and we uh, interact in spiritual communities and we pursue some sort of uh, spirituality where we think the whole thing is going to have like an annual performance review. Some of you guys have put yourself on your own pit. Like it, that's not it. All right. That's not happening. There is no judge. There's no audience. There's no one clapping or critiquing. This is your practice. Not so that you become perfect, but so that you transform. We don't have to achieve, we don't have to produce anything, we don't have to constantly avoid some feeling of shame. It's just one big practice. I grew up as a as a church kid. Uh, any church kids here? Some of you? Congratulations. I went to church on, on Sunday mornings, yes? Sunday nights, do you guys do Sunday night church? Wednesday night church, yes? Uh, I was an RA, a Royal Ambassador. Any Royal Ambassadors in the house? Yeah, You got anybody wanna recite the Royal Ambassador Pledge <laughs> with me? No, as a Royal Ambassador, I, I'm just kidding. Uh, I did DBS, I went to church camp. Oh, on Sunday night church, we usually did children's choir practice or children's handbells. Anybody in a children's handbell choir? Did you get to wear the white gloves? Yeah, that was weird. That was weird that we did that for sure. But what I learned in all of that church, growing up, uh, was that I was supposed to perform a certain way. But that was really what my childhood church experience was about, was performing. So I showed up to the building, and I needed to be wearing my Sunday best. And um, I went to Sunday school, where I was asked to recite in front of my friends the memory verse. Did you guys do memory verses? And then um, there was a little piece of paper where maybe I got a check mark or even a sticker, depending on the Sunday school teacher, about whether I knew my memory verse and about whether um, I was giving an offering that day, whether I was going to adult church with my parents or just Sunday school with the other kids. We graded each other. That's what we were doing. We all graded one another in like first grade. We were seven and eight year olds being like, you should really work on your Bible memorization. <laughs> It had a good intention, but all it was telling me was that when I showed up in a spiritual community, I needed to perform a certain way. And then I did things in church, like walk to the front in front of everyone to make a decision. And then I was, I was trained to give testimonies. Anybody else give some testimonies? Which was really just, it's a performative monologue. And sometimes we would work on our testimony to kind of beef them up a little bit. Because I was like 11 years old. I, had, I hadn't been a drug addict. I didn't have anything good to talk about. I got nothing. So we would be like, yeah, that guy who came to the revival, his testimony was like 10 out of 10. So like, I got to sneak out of my house tonight or something. Like something crazy needs to happen. And then um, it, it turned out that that performance-based participation in church, it wasn't limited to just being a child. I got a little older, and I got assigned um, an accountability partner. Anybody triggered by that phrase? (laughs) And then I learned how to engage with that accountability partner. I learned uh, how to engage in something that's called performative vulnerability. You show just enough weakness that they don't question whether you're being honest, but not so much that they judge you. And that really defined a lot of my church experience, showed just enough weakness that they think you're honest, but not so much that someone might judge you. You don't want to feel the shame because it's there if you open up. There was money given so that I could go on mission trips, so that I could get other people to make performative decisions. And then I came back and gave big storytelling times about how people's money was well spent when I traveled overseas. To the people that looked like me didn't look like me or believed like me, but I convinced them that they should. And all that performing, it turns out that it was just the minor leagues in comparison to what it was like when I became a pastor. When I decided to become a pastor, I thought it was going to be a particularly uh, noble pursuit full of high-character people. I was wrong. Uh, Before I knew it, some of you guys knew me in those contexts, so just sorry, I guess. Before I knew it, honestly, um, I was a PR manager. That's what I did. I did PR at churches. I stood up, I had a good smile. I talked like I was supposed to talk so nobody asked too many questions. The first and only feedback I received after giving my first big, this, I didn't know it was gonna hurt me. Uh, The first and only feedback I received after I gave my first sermon uh, was an email from my boss that said, uh, be more funny had nothing to do with like my take on the Bible. I just wasn't entertaining enough. I was trained about how to avoid making real eye contact with people because there was a camera in the back. And if I wanted to make an important point, I didn't need to be looking at the people in the room. I needed to make sure that the people who were watching on the screens to the side of me and watching online at home knew that I was really serious. I was scolded over and over and over again for being too honest on stage because I brought negative energy to the room. And what was communicated to me in whispers and in shouts was that this is all a performance and there is an audience who will judge you and so you better impress and you better entertain. And I I quit my last megachurch job almost six years ago, like to the day, almost six years ago. And I have spent the last 2,190 days trying to rewire. Trying to rewire my brain so that I never have to stand up in front of you and entertain you or impress you. So that together we can be practicing something that isn't about perfection. It's just about transformation. So that we can normalize failure so it's okay if it doesn't go exactly right. I've been listening to you remind me of that. I've been ma- Katie has been making me save your nice text messages into a folder so that I read them. There is no one judging. In your pursuit of change and transformation, there is no audience. You don't have to pursue perfection and neither do I. We just normalize failure and we try again. Life, all of it, our spirituality, our participation in church, the way we parent and the way we partner, all of it is just one big practice, not a performance. So for you, do you feel that pressure to perform, to achieve? Now I wonder for you if that is an external pressure that there are other people, there are other voices telling you to perform a certain way, to behave a certain way, to impress, to produce a certain way? Or has that internal voice, be- external voice, become an internal voice? Like, are, are you telling yourself that? Is it external or internal? And I just wonder if you feel like in your life there is an audience waiting to judge you. I think because of the world we live in and the way that we all share our lives online, it's that we kind of live in that feeling like when we're in seventh grade and we walk in the lunchroom and we think everyone is looking at us. It turns out really no one is looking at us. But that's how we interact with the world. Like there is an audience waiting to judge and shame us. And when it comes to your spirituality, your faith, your journey with church, with God, in what ways would you say you have felt the need to perform? Maybe it's about what parts of your life you share. Maybe it's about checking some boxes. Maybe you think God is expecting something from you, but in what ways have you felt like you need to perform in spaces like this with church people in your own spirituality? And then how could you transition to a practice-based spirituality? No performance, just practices. The way that Jesus talks about it at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, it's just a lot of stuff alone, like just give to folks when no one sees, pray in a room alone. And um, I think for most of us, we have been so shamed to check the right boxes and to doing our morning quiet time or whatever, that we've thrown out a lot of those practices that are good and healthy because our own internal voices haven't allowed us to find some healthy middle ground. We say we're either doing them so that we can check off the box, and then when we don't, we feel so bad about it, we can hardly stand ourselves, and so we just don't do it at all. But I think um, maybe it might be time to do some things again and do them like religiously. (laughs) Like just say, I'm gonna do, this is the practice I'm gonna do, I'm gonna spend 10 minutes alone. Maybe it's just in silence. Maybe you say, I'm not ready to read a Bible yet, or this is too confusing to me, or it just stresses me out with the anxiety. That's okay. You just said, I'm going to spend 10 minutes alone every day somewhere in quiet. Not trying to produce anything, not trying to achieve anything. I'm not impressing anyone. I'm not even impressed with myself. I'm just going to do it anyway. What would silence look like? Or take a 15-minute walk alone every day, where you just close your computer, put your phone down, and just be alone. And then when you fail, you just you don't shame yourself because perfection isn't a part of a practice. You just try again, over and over and over again. Your faith, your spirituality, none of this is meant to be a performance. It is an embodied practice. You are not being judged or evaluated. You don't have to be perfect. Just keep going again and again and again. Uh, in, in this parable from Jesus, there the wise and the foolish builder. There's an interesting little note here that doesn't get talked about a lot. Uh, The rain comes down and the waters rise and the winds blow against the house. That's the three things that Jesus describes. Rain comes down, streams rise, wind blows against the house. It happens for the person that puts Jesus's words into practice and the person who doesn't. It's just like a reality of life that we will experience pain. And grief and suffering. Yeah, if you feel like you're doing everything right, the rain is still coming. The streams will still rise. The wind will still blow up against your house. It is just true for everyone. The rain is coming. It's just—it's a universal truth. And I promise you that when that rain starts to pour, you will not have the energy to keep your performance up. When the proverbial winds are crashing against your house, your ability to perform for other people, to impress and to achieve will come to a sudden halt. And I know that some of you have had a really painful season or you're in the middle of it. I know you have. Uh, Me too. And when I have been knocked down, when the water has been rising in my life, when I have been overwhelmed by pain and grief and fear, I did not give a damn about impressing anyone. All the performances, the need to achieve, they just go away. But for me, those little practices, some of them I didn't even know I was doing, those were the lifeboats a way to stay alive alone in my car in the darkness of the morning those little practices that no one sees those are the ones that will sustain you not impressing somebody you don't even know it's when you're alone that's where you'll find god not in a crowd not in anyone's applause but in the silence in the pain in the rain If you'll stop trying to win, and achieve, and perform, it's alone in the dark, you'll find that you have built your house on a rock. So gather, this is my prayer for us today. Your transformation relies only on your ability to fail, and then try again. Trust that you are not being judged or evaluated. You don't have to be perfect, just keep going. May it be so. Amen. Thanks for listening. If you're interested in Gather, check out our website at gatherhouston.org or visit us on Sunday at 10 a.m.